0: Well, good morning, NBC. Uh, it's good to be back in the pulpit again, and a special thank you to Kathy Wilfer. That was a great, great lesson for the kids, so I do hope that you take that uh, to heart during this time. Now, I want to say, just again, thank you to everyone who was praying for our family and helped us out while we were sick. Uh, Amanda and I want you to know just how thankful we are for you, and as Pastor Dave detailed out before, there's just so many in our church body that are, that are taking seriously being the hands and the feet of Jesus. We really have an amazing church body here at NBC. Uh, if you don't know that, we have a generous church body. And I want to encourage you, again, to always look for ways to reach out, to love people, to help those who are in need, and to both demonstrate and proclaim the gospel. And that really is the subject of our passage in Romans this morning. So as we start our message today, I want to address something that I think a lot of us have been wrestling with during this period of time. And that is the topic of shaving. Some of us have decided to start starting to grow beards because shaving has become a chore for us. Uh, plus, <clears throat> plus, you really don't want to go to the store to buy razors right now. People are trying to stay away from the stores. Now, if, I, if we really admit it, buying razor blades, even in a non-quarantine time, can be a challenging endeavor. Right, there, there was one time that I went, to the, I went to the store to buy razor blades, and I found out that the box was locked up like it's tight as Fort Knox. No one was around to help me, of course, in the store, and so I tried harder to get the razor blades out because I really needed to shave. Uh, but I set off an alarm, and then all of a sudden, the staff came over and started yelling at me. And I looked at them, and I said, hey, the tagline for your store should be this. It's like, you don't want me to buy razor blades. I hated Buying razor blades at the store. And so when someone came along and offered a different way to buy razor blades, I it just struck a chord with me. Has anyone out there ever heard of Dollar Shave Club? Right? If, you, if you don't use Dollar Shave Club, this is like the place to get razor blades, But getting them online. In fact, according to the Wall Street Journal, web sales of razor blades through such companies like Dollar Shave Club have skyrocketed. And back back in 2015, they went from no slice of the market to nearly 10%, and there's no sign of them slowing down. So you may ask the question, how did a company like Dollar Shave Club, which didn't even exist several years ago, storm onto the scene and take such a big bite away from companies like Gillette, which have existed since 1901? And I think the answer is easy. Gillette and its distributors looked at things from the inside from their perspective, not from the consumers. They made the experience of buying blades negative for shoppers. So when someone comes along and listened to the consumer and thought like a buyer, not a seller, they got a lot of buyers to flock to their side. And so you can only imagine the people at places like Dollar Shave Club thinking, okay, people hate the way razor blades are sold. But stores don't want them stolen, so let's just rethink how we can get these blades into people's hands. And that's what they did. Now, that may sound like a silly illustration to start with, but here is what I want you to consider this morning. In an age of coronavirus, perhaps it's time we start rethinking how we do evangelism, how we share our faith. Now, three months ago, if you wanted to share your faith with somebody, what would you do? right? You'd, you'd invite them over for dinner, or you'd meet up with them for coffee. And now we can't do that right now, so, so what do we do? And, and I think we're feeling this tension because we want to get the word out, but there's all these barriers in our way. We need to rethink how we get the gospel message in people's hands and in their hearts. So what are some of the challenges that we're facing right now. Let's just consider a couple. Number one is social distancing. Man, that seems like all we hear about today, that we need to social distance. Just keep that, that six-foot rule, keep six feet for the Holy Spirit, right? So how are we supposed to speak with people about our faith if we can't even get near them? Now, along with that, everybody right now is so filled with fear and panic that they don't want to be near you, right? And if they're near you, you got to wear a mask. And if you're not wearing a mask, people view you negatively. And even before this whole thing happened, people already had a negative view of Christians. So there, there was already a barrier there. I even saw reports during this crisis that people were unhappy with Samaritan's Purse, the Christian organization, when they were setting up pop-up hospitals in Central Park to help New York City with COVID patients. We indeed have barriers out there. But there's also, I want you to see, there's also great opportunities during this time. What are those opportunities? Well, first, I would say people are very anxious right now. And whenever a disaster comes into people's lives, there is a, there's a window of time when they will be more open to the gospel. And so we have an opportunity to take advantage of that and spur on conversations. In fact, I, I was listening to someone this week who was saying that they estimated that during this time, there's about 10 to 20% more people willing to have a spiritual conversation because we're in a time of crisis, Now, the question is, how do we do that? Well, we can't meet in person, but we can now leverage modern tools to help us connect, things that we're already doing, like social media or Zoom video conferencing or apps on your phone, like the Nextdoor app where you can connect with your neighborhood. And I want you to think about it this way. As a church, you come here, and we're always talking about ways that we can reach out, but this crisis has really forced us to be outside the walls of the church, to be the church. And so now, we have to think innovatively and creatively about using technology or or connecting in ways that we never had before. It's a tremendous, there may seem like there's barriers, but there's also a tremendous opportunity for us to be the church. And then finally, as we're the church, we have a chance to show people who have no hope that there is hope. In fact, sociologist Rodney Stark, in his excellent book, The Rise of Christianity, which I've noted before, says that the Christians stood out during the plagues of the first couple centuries because they were willing to go and help those that were sick when everybody else was running away, when everybody else was trying to play it safe. And I'm not suggesting that we be unwise in the ways that we interact with people, but I do think we can find creative ways to help people in need. Romans chapter 10 turns our attention to evangelism, to sharing the message of hope we have in the gospel. In other words, this chapter is about Paul reminding us of our call to share the message. And he does this, I think, by offering four Principles, four timeless principles that should lie at the heart of every believer. First, Paul says, we must be eager to share. Second, he's going to say, we must evaluate our beliefs. Third, we must engage the culture. And finally, finally, we must make others envious of what we have. <clears throat> so eager, evaluate, engage, Envy. Those principles provide a roadmap to sharing our faith in an age of coronavirus. So with that in mind, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into the text and see what Paul, what Paul says today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I come before you, and I thank you for your people who are watching with us today, who are, who are the church scattered, Lord. Even as we gather online, we're scattered in our homes, and we're asking the question, Lord, how do we share the gospel? How do we get out and and tell people about the hope and the message that we have in you, Lord Jesus? And so I pray this morning that we would have open ears and open hearts to hear what you have to say in your word, and may we take seriously our call to be your ambassadors. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, so first... We must be eager to share. Now, last week, Pastor Dave did a wonderful job explaining the first part of chapter 10 and explaining why Christ is the end of the law. And so I want to revisit Romans chapter 10, uh, the beginning of Romans chapter 10, very briefly because I think there is a foundational principle in verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God For the Israelites is that they may be saved. Now this verse comes in the context of Paul's desire to see his brethren, the Jews, come to faith and embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And we'll hear more about that desire in next week's sermon in Romans chapter 11, but but I want you to notice specifically Paul's prayer here. Because he says, my heart's desire and prayer is that my people... The Israelites, because Paul's also a Jew, would be saved. And so I want you to pause for a second at where you are at home right now or wherever you're listening to this and ask, what is your heart's desire? What's my heart's desire? Because there's a lot of things that we desire in this world, but I want you to really ask yourself, what do you desire? If you could have anything right now, what would it be? I think some of us wish we could just find toilet paper on the store shelves regularly. Others of us, are just, we're just dying to be in the presence of another person and give them a hug just to, to feel the connection and, and, and physical touch. Those are good desires. But, but Paul's chief concern here in this verse is that people would be saved, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he was eager to share the hope that he had. Are you, am I, eager to share our faith with others? That's the question. Now, notice two other things in this verse. Uh, First, this wasn't just Paul's desire, but this was an intricate part of his prayer life. And sometimes we miss this important element of prayer because often we pray for other people and we pray about the desires we have for them. But a larger purpose in prayer is that God is aligning our wills with His will. In other words, as we pray, our hearts start to change, change to desire the things that God desires. That's what spending time in His presence does. And what God desires is that people would be saved. Now, more specifically, Paul is praying for his people. And I want you to think right now about who your people are. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's people from New Jersey in general. Perhaps there's some other specific affinity group that you are connected with. Do, listen, do you desire that they be saved if they don't know Christ? Because that's what Paul is saying here about the people of Israel, that he, he loves his people and he wants them to be saved. Now, for me, I have some family members that I've been praying for for a long time Right? And their hearts just seem so hard at times. And maybe you've also had that experience with your family. Maybe it's your, uh, you know, a relative or, or one of your children. I don't know. But my heart's desire is to see those family members saved and one day walk together with me in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. I've cried out to the Lord for them. So the question for you is who is it for you? Do you have an eagerness to share your faith because you love Jesus? That's that's the foundation for the rest of this passage. In fact, let's make it a bit more specific here. I just want you to ask, answer this question, who is your one person? Like, you, you can hear a message on evangelism and you think, well, that's too big a task for me. But if you make it personal, if right now you write it down on your outline or wherever you're taking notes, write down on, on, on that outline the name of one person you can reach out to. Who's your one person? Because if we really, truly, really and truly understand the gospel, we will want other people to be saved. Do you understand and believe the gospel, and that's the subject of movement too. Our second point here is that we have to evaluate our beliefs. We must evaluate our beliefs. Now, when we get to verse 5, Paul launches into a rather complicated argument that he grounds in several Old Testament passages. So, let me see if I can, just, I can break it down for you uh, <clears throat> simply and understandably. So, look at verse 5. Paul writes, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Now you may remember in verse 4 that Paul has just concluded the last section by saying that Christ is the culmination or the end of the law. But then immediately in verse 5, Paul jumps back into talking about Moses and the law. What is he doing here? Right now, we've already learned throughout all of Romans that true righteousness is obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the end of the law because he has achieved righteousness for us by accomplishing what we could not, and that is obedience. Jesus lived the life we could not have. In verse 5, Paul quotes Leviticus 18.5, which in its original context has a point, point. and the point of that verse is this, obeying the law perfectly would lead to eternal life. Now, of course, we know that we can't and won't obey the law perfectly. So, Paul needs to give some further explanation. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, now that sounds confusing, right? What's up with all these rhetorical questions here, you may ask? Well, I think to further illustrate his argument, Paul uses another Old Testament passage here, and it's it's Deuteronomy 30, specifically verses 12 to 14. But to understand this quotation, we must know the full context of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 14, and there's, there's three points in those verses that are worthy of note. First, If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 and 2, Moses says that Israel will stray from God and as a result receive curses. However, secondarily, Deuteronomy 36 says that God will show grace to his people Israel and will continue to establish a relationship with his people even though they're disobedient. And then finally, in Deuteronomy 30, 11-14, he's, what he's talking about here in Romans, is that Moses says, you don't need to work to be righteous, you just need to believe. And so in the context of Romans chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, Paul is using Deuteronomy 30 to explain what he means all the way back in verse 4, that Christ Is the culmination of the law that he obeyed it perfectly for us. He's the end of the law. And the way we become righteous is by believing and trusting in Jesus' work for us. See, Paul says you don't need to try to climb up and get to heaven. Why? Because Jesus Christ came down to earth. He came down to earth for us. And that, listen friends, that is an amazing truth of the gospel and something I think that sets Christianity apart from all other religions because in no other religion do the gods come down for their people. It's always about the people trying to, trying to get up to their gods. And then secondly, he says here, we don't need to die for our sins because Christ has died in our place once for all. That, this one verse is a picture of the incarnation and the atonement. So Paul uses Deuteronomy 30 to show us, and to show the Jews, I think, that true faith knows we don't need to do anything to be righteous, we simply need to believe upon Jesus Christ. Now he continues this thought in verse verse 8, he says this, but what does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart, that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now, again, Paul uses Deuteronomy 30, and specifically here verse 14, which in its original context, Moses says he knew that faith is not simply something that you say, but something you believe in your heart. And in Romans context, Paul is showing us that in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, God has brought righteousness to us, and we have to believe in Him. Amen. Now, just sit with this truth for a minute, because Paul's whole point in, Rome, in chapter 10, verses 5 to 8, was to reiterate to us that our obedience to the law and our works can't save us. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven to earth, who lived a perfect life, who died in our place for our sins. That is what saves. And so I want, you to, I want to ask you today to evaluate your belief and, and ask, do I believe that? And I ask that question because this message that Paul's laying out here is so counterintuitive to our current cultural narrative. Right? In fact, I'll give you an example. There was a local governor recently on the news who made a striking statement the other week about his state's efforts to slow the coronavirus spread. And so as the cases lowered and they started to improve in a press conference, he defiantly said, we did that. God did not do that. We did that. We saved those people. And that was shocking to me because it solidified the truth that people don't see a need to be saved. It's all about our works and our efforts. In fact, Tim Keller makes the same observation. He says that that the modern cultural narrative is all about us achieving through our efforts, through our intellect, through our moral living And modern society wants to abandon this whole idea of being saved really from anything. And this is the dichotomy I think Paul is discussing in verses 5 to 8. We can't save ourselves, we need a Savior. And again, i got to say that I think more people are open to hearing that message during a crisis, but we only have a finite window of time to communicate it. And so we have to evaluate our beliefs to make sure we understand it. And so thankfully, in in, in verses 9 to 13, Paul now clearly lays out the content of the gospel. So look at verse 9. He says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, in verse 8, we learn that the, uh, the word was near us, but you may be asking right now, well, what, what is the word? And it is, I think, in fact, a truth to be believed. So, verse 9 is, is a really famous verse, and it's a major stop on the Romans' road to salvation. And there's a reason it's included in so many gospel presentations, because it clearly lays out the content of the gospel. Look at what he says. First, he says, Jesus is Lord. And the Greek word for Lord is, of course, the word kurios. And in the Greek Old Testament, kurios was often translated, the translation of God's personal name, Yahweh. And so when he says that Jesus is Lord, it is to proclaim that he is the supreme ruler of the universe. He's not, he's not a, a president that we vote out of our lives when we don't like his policies. He's Lord. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Does your allegiance to him dictate how you live? We have, see, we have to evaluate our beliefs. Secondly, Paul emphasizes Jesus' work on our behalf because not only did he die on the cross, but Jesus rose from the dead. Now, this truth is so crucial in our modern world because you, you got to say, if the resurrection is real, then Christianity must be true. And even if you're talking with a skeptical person, if you present the evidence of the resurrection to them, a lot of times they admit it's, it's immense, it's overwhelming. But again, first, you have to ask if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You have to evaluate your beliefs. Now, I think the resurrection is another wonderful touch point, gospel touch point, for our coronavirus age. Because if you listen to the news or you talk with people, there's so much talk of death and suffering. But we, Christians, are the people who can point others to eternal life. Right? Don't you understand that for the Christian, death is not the end? Why? We're told right here. Because Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of what we will experience in the future, our own resurrection from the dead. When, when we believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it says you will be saved. Verses 10 to 11, he says, "...for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified." And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. Now verse 10 just reiterates what verse 9 said. But it's also conf- you know, it shows us that confessing with your mouth and believing with your heart that really are in separate actions. In other words, if you believe in your heart, you will confess with your mouth. John Stott offers this helpful explanation. He says this, "...the the parallelism is reminiscent of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament, and the two clauses are to be held together rather than separately. Thus, there's no substantive difference here between being justified and being saved. Similarly, the content of the belief and that of the confession need to be merged." So what Paul calls us to in verses 10 to 11 is a profession of faith, and when we transfer our hope and our trust to Jesus, we will never regret it, and as he says, we will never be put to shame because we have all the love and acceptance we need. Verses 12 to 13 says this, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. Now, Paul quotes the prophet Joel here, and he makes it very clear who Jesus is. He's God. He actually uses that word "curious" to quote from uh, the Joel passage, solidifying Jesus' power and authority. So, the content of the gospel is this. Submit to Jesus as Lord... And when you believe and confess his death, burial, and resurrection, you will be saved. When you call on his name, we're told you will be saved. But more than that, verse 12 tells us that this message, listen to this, this message is for who? The message is for everyone, Jew and Gentiles. Now here again, we have to ask ourselves if we really and truly believe this. Because in chapter 9 of Romans, we learn that we're saved by grace. It's nothing that we've done. And if we're saved by nothing that we've done, I would say it should motivate us to share the gospel with everyone. Again, we need to evaluate our beliefs. Do you believe verse 12? Because that verse tells me that the gospel is both for the insider and the outsider. The gospel is for people who don't share my beliefs. The gospel is for people whose lifestyles I don't agree with. The gospel is for people of a different generation than me. The gospel is for everyone, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Now, this comes back to our first point of the passage. Are you eager to share the gospel? Do you have a burden for someone in your life? And if you don't, you have to ask yourself, do I believe verses 12 and 13? Otherwise, we're complacent, we're we're apathetic. And I think a lot of Christians are content just not sharing the gospel. They're content staying in their holy huddles. And and listen, let me say this. If you are someone who is content not sharing the gospel, I want to encourage you to sit down. And meditate on all the people out there, all the people in our state who don't know Christ. Pray and ask the Lord to rekindle a fire within your heart for those that don't have a relationship with the living God. Because there's a world out there right now that is dying for what we have to offer. And they're more open to listening. And I know many of us out there are struggling with the same thing our non-Christian friends and neighbors are struggling with. And I'm not saying that the feelings we're feeling right now are invalid. They are very valid. And we should take precautions. But I am saying that we should not be people who are hopeless. I'm saying that we should be people who model hope because we really have it. Right now, everyone's placing their hope in a vaccine being developed for this this virus. Everyone's placing their hope in the economy bouncing back in the third quarter. And and listen, believe me, I, I am hoping that both those realities come true. God has given us scientists and economists to help us, and that is a good thing. But as we evaluate our beliefs, we must ask, am I allowing a hope in a vaccine or in the economy to supersede my trust in Jesus Christ. Friends, we need to evaluate our beliefs and ask whether we are truly placing our trust in God because our hope ultimately is not in a vaccine or economic recovery. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And there needs to be an element of that as we we live and even wrestle with this uncertainty because if we don't have hope, The content of the gospel, how can we we possibly accomplish Paul's third point, which is we must engage the culture? Now, Romans 10, verses 14 to 17, is another well-known section of Romans, and it naturally flows from verses 5 to 13, which, which discussed this content of the gospel. So now that we know the gospel, he says, now it's time to go and tell others about it. Paul communicates this through a series of questions. Look at verse 14. He says, how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Have you ever heard the famous phrase, preach the gospel, but if necessary, use words? Now, I'm not sure you can read Romans 10, 14 and take that verse as gospel truth because Yes, listen, there's times to display the gospel, and we should be displaying the gospel. A lot of us are out there giving, giving out food, we're giving, we're being generous. But I think that the church of our day needs to be exhorted with this verse right here more often. We need to speak the gospel. And I'm making an assumption here because most commentators think that verses 14 and 15 are referring to the preaching of the gospel to everyone. At the end of the chapter and in, verse, and in chapter 11, he starts to be more focused on the Jewish people. And so I wonder if you could pause and just ask yourself, how did I hear about the gospel? Because if you're a Christian listening today, someone told you about the gospel. And so we now need to be that person for someone else. Remember, Paul's heart, Paul's prayer, his eagerness is to see people come to faith and so in verse 14 he starts to ask these questions. He says, how can they call if they don't believe? Right? In other words, people will will not have a relationship with Jesus if they don't believe in him, if they don't surrender to him. And this is again, this is what he's been saying throughout all of Romans. You're not saved by being a good person. You're not saved by moral living. You are saved when you really believe in Jesus. The second question he asks though is more indicting for us, he says, how can they believe if they have not heard? In other words, if no one has told you the gospel, how can you believe? And if you want some motivation to share your faith, it's right here. Like, like right now, everyone is so concerned with the suffering that's going on in this world. And there is immense suffering. We should be concerned about that. But do you, do you want to know what's worse than the suffering in this world? eternal suffering apart from God. So, we should care enough about that to be speaking during this time. Thirdly, he says we should care enough about this truth to preach. And the word preaching here is the Greek word kariso, which means to be a herald or to make an announcement. Are you willing to be a herald so that people will hear And if you question, if you're sitting at home now saying, ah, you know, people just have that gift, they do that. If you're questioning whether you're called, look at verse 15. He says, And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And let me just say this if you're a Christian, and if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and place your faith in him, you are sent, you are a missionary. And the question you have to ask yourself is this, how beautiful are my feet? Now, listen, some of you are saying, oh, hey, you're saying, hey, I don't want to show anyone my feet. Like, they're they nasty. Right now, the salons have been closed for over a month, and I haven't had a pedicure. In fact, people just, they, they rarely notice our feet, although they might notice our shoes and as the philosopher Forrest Gump once said, you can tell a lot about someone from their shoes. And so I want you to stop right now in your living room again or wherever you're listening to this message and look at your feet, right? And if you're with someone, I want you to ask that person, how beautiful are my feet? And I want you to think about all the places your feet take you, right? Your feet take you to people's houses. They take you to Different states, they take you to restaurants. Maybe they take you to different countries. And when you go to those places, what do you do? You develop relationships. And so the question we should ask in this verse is really, though, when we go to those places, do we open our mouths? But look, look, look it says, "How beautiful are the feet of what of those who what, who bring the good news? who preach, who are heralds of the good news of the gospel. Now, now I recognize that our feet are taking us less places today because of all these restrictions out there. But the principle, I think, here still applies. Even if you're connecting with people digitally, are you bringing the good news to people who are hopeless? Because how will they hear if you do not speak? If you do not engage them with a counter narrative to what they're hearing on the news, right? Verse 16 and 17, Paul turns his attention back to the Jewish people. He says, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from what? From hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Now, Paul says here there are some people who've not believed. They need to hear the message about Christ. And so, as we close this point, I just want to ask you again who are the people you are burdened for? Who are your people? As we said in point one, we need to be eager to share. And I know there's someone in your life who needs to hear the gospel but is not. And the reason we often don't share the message about Jesus is because we are afraid of rejection. But I have to tell you there's an opportunity out there because a lot of people are afraid right now. They're afraid of a lot of things. And so friends, it's time for us to preach. And so I wonder if as a church we could catch this vision of sharing Christ during the corona. And if we did, I think it would look like like this illustration, because I I heard a recent story about some beachgoers along the shores of the Panama City Beach in Florida who found themselves witness to an event as dangerous as it was inspiring. So while playing in the water, there was two boys who suddenly got caught in a rip current and they started to scream for help. And as you're thinking right now, hey, maybe the beaches are going to be open this summer, there's still rip currents out there. There's still danger when you go to the beach. And when this happened, understandably, the boy's mother's ju- mother jumped in the water to try and save them, but then she got caught herself. And one by one, more family members came in after the group, only they faced the same predicament. And after a short period of time, the spectacle and the shouts, they started to attract more onlookers. There was a guy named Derek Simmons who witnessed this, and he said there was a guy in the water saying, man, they're all stuck out here. The riptide's pulling them out. I tried to get out there, but if I go any further, I'm going to get stuck. But Simmons' wife, Jessica, did some quick thinking. What she did was she gathered the help of all those around, and she began instructing people to grasp arms and wade into the sea as a human chain anchored to the safety of the shore. In fact, that said as many as 80 people worked together in this fashion. And after a stressful few minutes, they successfully pulled the swimmers to safety. It was the most remarkable thing to see, Jessica Simmons told the reporters. She said those people who didn't even know each other, and they trusted each other that much to get these people in danger to safety. Now, friends... Could we as a church catch a vision for reaching others with the gospel? Because there's people out there caught in a rip current right now, and they need a people to be people of hope, Christians, to jump in and grab them and pull them out and tell them about the message of the hope that we have. And when we do that, we will apply Paul's final principle. So let me mention this briefly. We must make others envious of what we have. Now, you may say, what does that mean? And what I'm getting at with this point is this. People should want what we have. People should want what we have. Because if the world looks at the church, and, and we're just as scared and anxious as they are, they, they'll look at us and they'll say, what good is that? Right? I'll place, my, I'll, I'll place my, my trust in my own efforts, in my therapist, in my, in my bank account, Now, in the last section of this chapter, Paul makes the point of saying that he used the Gentiles to make the Jews envious of what they had. Look at verse 18. He says, but I ask you, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. Now, speaking of the Jewish rejection of the gospel, Paul asks, did they hear? And his response is, of course they did. Right? And then he quotes Psalm 19.4 to illustrate that the gospel has gone out. It's been heard far and wide. God's revealed himself. The Jews were without excuse. But then look at the point he makes in verse 19. He says this, Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. So Israel heard the gospel, but perhaps they didn't understand it. And maybe you start to see what Paul's doing here, right? He's saying that it's possible to be exposed to the gospel intellectually, but not understand it. In fact, there may be even some of us listening uh, today who've heard the gospel. Maybe you're you're listening at home, you're listening on podcast, and and you've, you've been exposed to the gospel, but you haven't really understood and surrendered to Jesus, and so Paul quotes here Deuteronomy 32, 21, and look at what he does. He's specifically speaking about the Gentiles, who were a nation that has what? They have no understanding. In other words, he used the Gentiles to make the Jews envious that these people, the Gentiles, who did not have the law or the tabernacle or the favor of God, but they, and they were, they were not the chosen people, but they understood and believed the gospel. And so you might ask, well, why didn't Israel believe? It wasn't because they didn't understand, because God can overcome that. Look at verse 20. It says, and and Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Did Israel not seek after God? In verse 20, he quotes Isaiah 65.1, which in its original context is a verse that refers to God revealing himself to Israel. Paul here, though, is applying it to the Gentiles. They were the people who did not seek God, yet he revealed himself to them. In fact, this verse reiterates what Paul said in Romans nine. 30, that the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness, yet they've attained a right relationship with God. See, Paul is using this whole section to show Israel, the chosen people, the ones who thought they were right with God by what they did, that the Gentiles had something they did not have. The Jews were still in the dark. And so as we close today, I would ask you do people want what you have? Do people see hope within you even in the midst of crisis? Because that is the thing that will go furthest during this crisis to opening a door to conversations about the gospel. Because people are experiencing sickness. People are losing loved ones and are not able to see them in the hospital. People are losing their livelihoods. Will they look at us as the church and say there's something different about them? They have a peace that passes all understanding. They have a love for their neighbors and their community. They have a desire to be generous even in uncertainty. Will we, like the Gentiles, make people envious of our hope? And so let me finish where I started today, and that is Paul's heart for his people. Romans 10.1 tells us that Paul's desire and prayer was that people would be saved, especially his people. Friends, are we eager to share the gospel? And that's hard sometimes because people are going to reject us, right? And in fact, in in chapter 10, verse 21, Paul reveals the real reason the Jews rejected the gospel. Verse 21, he says, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Why did Israel not believe? They were a disobedient and obstinate people. They were stubborn. And when we talk to people about Jesus, even in an age of coronavirus, in an age of anxiety, people will still be disobedient and obstinate. People people are going to mock us and call us bigots. But look at what God says to Israel. He says, all day long, I have held out my hands. Will we do the same thing for our people? for those we love. Will we have the courage to share the message of Christ, to plead for salvation as we're on our knees and hold out our hands as we have expectant hearts for God to move? I pray that we will. I pray that our feet would be beautiful as we open our mouths and open our hands to share the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray. I'll invite the worship team to come back up for one Final song. Let me pray for you at home. Heavenly Father, Lord, I come before you and I ask right now that you would move on people's hearts, that you would give them courage, Lord. I pray for those out there that have no hope right now, Lord, that you would restore hope to them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us boldness. I pray that you would burden us for those we know who don't know you and give us the creativity, give us the pathway to share your message of hope with those that do not have it. All for your glory and for the sake of your gospel, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.